Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now, driving at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Menes. Joining me as ever is Paul Dennett. Paul, how are you? Good, Menes. As always, I, I keep on thinking that I'm not missing cricket and then remembering that's because I'm watching about 90 minutes of YouTube cricket footage each day. So I'm not missing cricket because I'm watching cricket. <laughs> <laughs> and that is our special guest laughing, the chief cricket writer from The Australian. We've got Pete Lawler in. Pete, how are you coping with this you know, void of cricket? The nostalgia's killing me. It's killing me. Oh. I don't know. I don't know how you do it, Paul, but, you know, cricket.com had its biggest month ever last month when there was absolutely no cricket. People people like the past more than they do the present, don't they? But of course, you can cherry-pick the past. That's the thing, isn't it? You don't see the bits you don't want to see, those, horror, those crap games, those draws, all those ones where you lose. So in England, they're all playing 2005, and over here they're playing whatever, you know, whatever series that is. Australia won. <laughs> but you're right. I was watching an ODI where they scored, it was like 200 plays, 200. And it was just the highlights. And I was thinking, God, if you had to watch the whole game, this would be bloody boring watching a 100 overs where, you know, it's 200 plays, 200. So you're right. You can cherry pick the good bits. Yeah. No, but look, hey, I took the first four weeks off. Well, I was asked to take the first four weeks off and I enjoyed it so much. I said, I'll take longer off, but they said, no, come back. And, uh, Strangely, my comeback coincided with the cricket controversy. So there's been a hell of a lot to write about. Yeah, well, there has been. And I guess let's get into the cricket headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. I guess we'll start with a light one. Pete, you wrote a fantastic special on Tim Payne for the Australian last weekend going through his story. I found some of it fascinating, you know, the fact that he's a clean freak, the fact that Ricky Ponting lured him back to cricket, he's, he just seems like a great person to interview. Oh, yeah, look, he's fantastic to interview. Like Stories like that, they only really work if people give to you, and, and Tim and his family, are they're, they're unguarded people. They probably say too much. They give too much away. But, uh, they love to tell stories. They love to talk, and uh, it was a perfect time to get players on, like spend time with players. Normally, I'd have been down there in his house, but with the social distancing, I had to do it via social media. But that was great, you know. He was so generous with his time, and so was everybody around him. What did you glean from that that you didn't already know about him? I, I think what I gleaned from it more than anything came after it. I, I think the biggest takeaway for me from that story is Tim Payne has won Australia. I mean. 
the cricket fans in Australia universally love and respect Tim Payne and what he's achieved in that short period, the sort of person he is, the sort of captain he is, the change that he's brought about to the team with, with Alfie. I mean, you go into this comment section of a newspaper, you know, against all advice, expecting, you know, it can be horrific down there. Every single comment was complimentary about Tim Payne. And all, all the feedback I'm getting is, I just love Tim Payne. So I think Australia's fallen in love with Tim Payne. That's what I take away from that story. I hadn't realised, I mean, I know that he'd been, I knew that he'd been very close to giving the game away. I hadn't known that there'd been any involvement by Ponting in, in keeping him in. Is is that a concern that we've got a player that has proven to be so successful that he was almost lost to the system? Should we be doing more to keep players like that in the system? Well, it was pretty extraordinary intervention from Ponting. If you think about the scenario at the time, I mean, Tim's career was petering out. Mm. I mean, he was still the best keeper, but he couldn't make a run. He was screwed in the head. I mean, I suppose that's the biggest revelation to me was him saying that he had that performance anxiety and had never shared it with anybody that 10 minutes before he batted, this anxiety hit him like a truck, he said, and he couldn't shake it and he was gone in the head. He just could not bat. So that he was looking to get out of the game doesn't surprise me. Tasmania didn't necessarily need him anymore. I think it was just... It was telling that Ricky saw there was still an upside to him, and so did Greg Chappell. And, you know, you have to doff your cap to those sorts of people. Part of it from Ricky is that he's a Tasmanian and that we can't let good, good Tasmanian cricketers go. We've got to find a way to keep them in the system. I don't think it's a fault with the system that Tim was falling out because he had every right to be falling out of the system. His cricket was a mess right up until about the summer that he made his breakthrough, wasn't it? I had Neville in the keeping job instead of Payne at the time. Seems like Tim Payne's wife, Bonnie, I follow her on social media. She yeah. seems like an energetic woman and um, I don't know, I, I think she's probably, uh, you know, gives him a lot of sort of support in the back room that we don't know about. Yeah, cricketers' wives are a curious area and some of them bring a lot to the bloke's professional game because they actually aren't that interested in the game. I mean, Rihanna Ponting's secret was she had no interest in cricket. Mm. So Ricky could go home, close the door. She wouldn't have known most days if he'd made a 100 or if he'd made a duck. And if he had made a 100 or he had made a duck, it just didn't really matter to her. And I, I got a little bit of a sense of that with Bonnie when she said, well, when he got picked to play test cricket again for Australia in the Ashes, I thought, oh, God, more cricket, you know. <laughs> she said, I had no idea what the Ashes were, <laughs> was about. And this was the beauty of Bonnie. She admits that she flew up to Brisbane thinking, you know, here we go. Look, Tim's going to be away from the family for five whole, you know. Well, she didn't even know. She got to Brisbane and she Googled, how long does a test last for? <laughs> I think that people like that can can give cricketers a safe place away from the game, can I say. Funny story, because I spoke to mum and Sally and I said to mum, you know, we've met. She said, yeah, yeah, we met on that plane. And I said, where was that? Because it was with Bonnie and the first child. And she said, it was actually flying from Cape Town to Johannesburg. So we were right in the middle of that storm of him being appointed captain was when I actually sat next to him on a plane. You always put in a lot of work when you sit next to a player's wife and mum on the plane. Mm. (laughs) Good tip. That story just reminds me of Jane McGrath talking about how when she first walked with Glenn McGrath along Cronulla Beach and people were walking by him saying, you know, ooh, ah, and g'day, and she thought, oh, geez, he's got a lot of friends and didn't mm, have any mm. idea that it's because he was, um, <laughs> you know, nationally famous. <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't think there's a universal model for it either because if you look at the relationship that the Warners have, it's quite different. It's because she's a triathlete. She's a professional athlete. That fitness that David has now is a direct result of her intervention in his career when they first met. And she said, you're a fat, lazy <laughs> Basically get out there, stop drinking and do some bloody work. And look at him now. He's one of the fittest blokes that plays cricket. Watching David Warner chase a ball to the boundary on day five in a cricket match, that bloke never stops. He's got extraordinary energy and I suspect he's going to be even fitter when he comes back because apart from making TikToks, I think all he's been doing is running and working out. Are you on TikTok now, Pete, because it's such a vital part of your work? No, no, (laughs) no, no. I'm on Twitter 
and Facebook, mate. Are they the old people's social media? They are. I do have Instagram, but I never go there. I was using it for a little while, but and pictures bore me. You know, I'm the caption writer. I'm not that interested. Mm. You know, talking about Tim Payne, this summer presents a a big opportunity for him to right the wrong of losing that home series to India. We'll see Payne v Coley again. What are you hearing about the chances of the test series going ahead? Oh, well, it's all gut feel, isn't it? But I can't see it not going ahead. I'm very confident that India will come out and things will fall into place because... I'm also pretty confident that that World Cup will not happen in Australia. India will need the Aussie players to go over there. That's going to open up a uh, can of worms. But uh, in return, India will be very cooperative when it comes to touring in the summer. And Ben Horn reported the other day that they've offered two extra ODIs. I was hoping that they would offer a fifth test, but it looks like that's not the case. So they'll play the four tests. Now, uh you said that the, you don't think the World T20 will go ahead. Uh, I mean, does that mean that it'll get cancelled or will they reschedule it? I mean, it seems like literally pitted against the IPL now for that time slot. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I can't see it happening then. There'll be talk around postponing it. There's some talk about putting it in February. But, God, it's creating a world of problems. I think the ICC, I can't see how they're going to put it on. I'm right about this, aren't I? There is another... T20 World Cup in 2021. In India, yeah. One of my friends and I, one of the things we've always enjoyed mocking the World T20 is saying, you know, there's, there's usually about two of them every year out there. And the prospect is that this next year, there actually could be two in the one year. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll be just bloody ridiculous, won't it? Hearing that the IPL, well, they already have plans in place and have had them in place for over six weeks to have the tournament in that window. They're in discussions with their broadcasters for the best part of two months about that. They were eyeing the UAE. There's now a second option come into play, and it's Sri Lanka. It's a good spot, Sri Lanka. I'd almost go over for a T20 World Cup in Sri Lanka, especially if it was all in Gaul. But Sri Lanka's a virus-free, I think, pretty much. Okay. Yeah, in times of trouble, everyone seems to turn on each other. So at the moment, we've got the state associations versus Cricket Australia, you know, and this sort of battle centred around funding cuts. Do you see this getting ugly, Pete? Uglier? I mean, it is ugly. It's really, really ugly. The hostility between the states and CA and varying levels with different states is as bad as it's ever been. And CA's relationship with the players was toxic during the MOU and CA blow up every time I mention the MOU, but I can't see how you don't mention the MOU in relation to this story. But they only had a problem with the players in that situation. CA have a problem with the players, states and their staff, and it's a problem, well, who knows? Is it COVID-related? Is it uh, financial mismanagement? Is it just mismanagement? But they've got trouble on every front. I mean, if they wanted the MOU to go away, maybe putting Kevin Roberts as CEO wasn't the best way to go about that, considering he led those negotiations. On a philosophical level, I've always wondered why we have the states in, in cricket and that it would be just make more sense to just have one federal board and then uh, and go from there. But maybe am I wrong? Is this an instance of where this, some of the states are kind of being a bit intransigent towards the national body and that, that, that may well be for the game's greater good? Yeah, I mean, got to ring Gideon or uh, Daniel for governance. But, yeah, look, I think a lot of us got sold on that sort of one cricket model and independent governance when that Carter Crawford review went through whenever it was and they basically uncoupled themselves from the states but became that sort of federal body that took in all the tax money and then distributed it to them. And I think that everyone thought that was great for a while, except the states. And we said, well, they're just being jealous and, you know, protecting their fiefdoms and God knows what and what would they know. But as it's played out, I reckon you see that the states bring a certain cricket knowledge and a certain proximity to cricket in their areas. And everyone has different problems and issues according to where they are and what they do. And unless you have those state bodies, head office doesn't get it. You know, they're a little bit protected up there in Jollymont from, you know, what the issues are, say, in the Hunter Valley versus what the issues are in Victoria. I mean, you know, one of the great criticisms of CA is that it is too Victorian-oriented. And I have heard uh, one state chairman say to me in the middle of all of this is, yeah, isn't it time that they stay, uh, got themselves out of Victoria and maybe uh, established somewhere else or sort of had two two bases. For sure. It should be based on the number of Sheffield Shield titles won. 
should be straight up to Sydney. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know which hat I'm wearing today, the uh, Victoria <laughs> hat or live in New South Wales hat. I'll just uh, see how this goes. Yeah. Probably with you two, I'll, I'll use the born in Victoria hat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you mentioned Victoria. I mean, I read yesterday from Crash that you know, the head of the Brisbane Heat's been made redundant. So you've got cuts in Queensland, Victoria. My take on that, Pete, is that someone has to be fired for those cuts because either they expanded too quickly and established this huge bloated community cricket department that they can't sustain, or at the moment they're knocking out 36% of the staff. So either way, someone's got to go. I mean, I'm all for somebody having to go if, if it fits the problem. And there are additions that people have had and they're using coronavirus as cover the pandemic as cover for their, their previous mistake. And Victoria would seem to be one of those situations. Something's gone wrong. And they're a curious state. I mean, they're very hard to get a handle on. This is the state when Earl Eddings was rightly or wrongly appointed chairman of Cricket Australia that objected, that put out a press release at the same time saying, oh, we disagree with this, but he's one of yours. I mean, he served on your board. He's a Victorian. Every state wants one of theirs as the chairman of Cricket Australia. But I don't know. They, they're a curious outfit. It's this insidious AFL culture. <laughs> now, Pete, what about the States vs Cricket Australia's one battle? Now we've got the ACA and Cricket Australia about to engage in negotiations. I mean, that could get messy again. Yeah, it could get messy. They have been, well, they're not about to. They have been sort of circling each other since all of this started. And when was that? About six five, six weeks ago, wasn't it? The issue that the Players Union has, the ACA, is the same issue that a lot of the states have, uh, particularly New South Wales and Queensland, and to a lesser degree WA and to a lesser degree Tasmania, is there's no financial clarity. CA do not seem to be able to provide the financial case to support their argument that there needs to be 25% cuts. And and I'll say from the start, their initial proposal was 50% cuts across the board. Greg Dyer has done a a piece on on their website. They're going to fight very hard against cuts to the WBBL and to the Sheffield Shield. Uh, These are things that, uh, well, the Sheffield Shield is something that they've always held very sacred. The WBBL has become sacred and they're going to fight tooth and nail against that stuff. I mean, for the fight with those two, I think that's ridiculous. Why in a summer where we could have less international cricket, would you cut the shield and the WBBL astounds me? I mean, our first class cricketers need to play. Money. He's there. I know why they're doing it. What haunts them about that stuff is that they still have those words ringing in their ear from the original proposal to... I'm going to say MOU again, uh, David Peaver's reference to those areas as cost centres in cricket. They are things that cost you money. I think they're more uh, R&D, aren't they? Research and development. I mean, you know, we know what the Shield does. Yeah, it's incredible. I will let you go soon because I know we're taking up too much of your time. I wanted to ask just, I was reading Ben Horn today, a bit of news that the ICC have decided to suspend the use of neutral umpires at the moment and they'll give each team probably one additional DRS review to save on sort of uh, travel. That's quite a big change. I haven't had a chance to read that email yet. I've been busy all morning, but... uh, uh, the extra DRS review just for the uh, local umpire is yes, allegedly doesn't biased say much, umpire. does it? No, it doesn't. Um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But the other side is to the spit on the ball, isn't it? Yeah. Apparently, sweat's going to be okay. Sweat's okay. So Alistair Cook would be hopeless because he doesn't sweat, does he? <laughs> but um, that worries me. That's my greatest concern. That I don't want to go to cricket and not see the ball swinging. That's going to make a dreadful cricket. The old hair gel, Pete. A little bit of hair gel for the players, I would suggest. Hair gel? Yeah, just a little bit. So, you know, if that accidentally right. were to get on your pants and then you were to shine the ball there. <laughs> yeah, that would discriminate against bald bowlers, mate. Yeah. <laughs> well, Pete, thank you for taking some time and, and stopping in at the show. You know, I really miss cricket, i got to say. I miss the the sounds and the rhythm of it and you know, miss waking up in the morning and watching the highlights and finding out what's been going on around the world. Right now, we probably just have had an IPL. So, yeah, I hope uh, I can run into you at a cricket ground next summer somewhere and we can actually see each other. <laughs> I would like to run into you sort of two metres apart, if that's all right. <laughs> that's right. Well, Pete, thank you and all the best. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Pete.
And that was Pete Lawler, Chief Cricket Writer from The Australian. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to review episode six of the test. I just want to remind you, if you've got a moment, go on and rate and review the podcast. And the episode before this one, uh, Paul released a fantastic Don Bradman history special. So go back and listen to that. Coming up after the break, our review of episode six of the test. And you're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered Podcast. I'm Menes. I'm with Paul. Thanks again to Pete Lawler from The Australian for stopping in. And let's get back into the Amazon's The Test. We're up to episode six. And, and this episode flies through the World Cup of 2019 pretty quickly, Paul. I think I feel a, a little bit about this episode as you felt about the Indian Test Series. I, at one point, was convinced Australia was going to win the 50-over World Cup. And so when they didn't, there was a fair amount of disappointment personally for me. And this kind of brought a lot of those feelings back up. Yeah, I felt the same way. I I really enjoyed this show until the build-up to the semi-final began in earnest. And I thought, I looked, for the first time probably in this documentary, I looked at how long there was left. And I saw there was 20 minutes and I thought, I'm going to have to endure 20 minutes of us uh, losing the semi-final. Uh, And, yeah, I was was very proud of myself for getting through it in one hit. This picks up from six weeks before the World Cup, and I guess a a lot of the drama in the beginning is about the reintegration of Steve Smith and David Warner back into the group, and we hear Langer sort of opening up, saying to the team, you know, Cape Town was a very dark time, but we have to sort of learn from it and and, and move on. And and, and then we sort of see... um, Nice bit of drama set up by the the show with you know David Warner talking about how he has seen the team grown from afar and but now that he's back he feels like he ha- hasn't left and then it sort of pans across to Steve Smith who's sort of looking at Warner and then Smith says it's been a pretty painful twelve months. I don't know what you think, but and I don't know whether it's the skill of the documentary team, but to me that meeting felt awkward. And there was a sense of not all being well, you know, a bit of unease within the team. Did you feel that way? It's hard to tell from afar. I, I sort of felt tension in the air more than anything. And, Me too. And, and, you know, you look at the body language and stuff. It, you know, it seems like people were on an edge. I mean, um, they would be. You bring the two biggest figures in Australian cricket back into the team. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. And Steve Smith sort of talks about the external noise that'll come in England and that he is expecting it. And Gideon Hay also talks about, uh, he, he questions whether Smith and Warner will be affected by um, not playing the game for a year. And uh, our old mate Pete Lawler jumps in then about how hostile England's going to be. So they're setting it up, aren't they? They are. The one thing I think that they could have mentioned was that Warner had just excelled in the IPL. Smith hadn't gone as well in the IPL, but I think he, he did reasonably well towards the back end of it. The, the whole talk of Warner being rusty was a little bit confusing because he'd been uh, the, you know, magnificent in the IPL just weeks beforehand. I also think that that's an example of like they've made convenient editorial decisions throughout the show that fit the narrative they're trying to tell. Um, and, and, you know, Warner having excelled in the IPL didn't quite fit narrative of a, a guy coming out of, you know, a year of sort of isolation and, um, you know, the ban basically. Yeah. And also they omitted the Pakistan series completely, not necessarily, I think, for narrative reasons, but maybe just to save, you know, the, to save time. But it would have been nice to have mentioned that Australia had gone to Pakistan and won, uh, to the UAE and beaten Pakistan 5-0. And then we see that, you know, the normal sort of uh, thing that we've seen a lot is Australia goes to Gallipoli and uh, we get the old sort of tired tropes uh, wheeled out about um, the Australian spirit being born there. And uh, I hate it when there's any sort of um, comparison made between a touring cricket team and going to war. Um, But I thought the documentary steered pretty clear away from that. I thought, it was fairly sensitive, but still a little bit cringy. Like, I'm not even sure if that bit needed to be in the documentary. You look at the other bits they've left out. I don't know whether that bit even needed to be in there. Well, I think I said it earlier when they went to France in, in the first episode that the players were suitably solemn about it all and that they treated everything with great respect. I tend to agree with you, though, as well. And, and for me, Gallipoli was not 
the moment that Australia was forged as a nation. Gallipoli was a regrettable, terrible campaign and a regrettable, terrible war. The, the, the whole world that no one emerged from with anything other than tragedy. And so I think that's the lesson from Gallipoli. I don't think there's anything, any parallels with, with sport. But as I said, the players were treating it with great respect. So uh, then we talk about here, Lyon and Smith talking about uh, sort of what it is to be mates. And I thought the inter- the interesting comparison for me was Steve Smith kind of saying that, you know, when you go out on that field as Australian cricket is your mates, you don't have to be great friends off the field like Zampa and Stoinis. But, you know, when you go across that, you know, white line, you're all mates. And whether you and I agree with that notion, I think that is something that seems to be pretty present in the Australian team that you can have all your egos and whatever, but when you're on the field, you're in it together, you're mates. It's a fascinating topic because I agree. And that if two people are playing for the one side, and don't like each other, their desire to win usually should overcome that. But then when that is removed and, and years go by and they're no longer teammates, that's when you can see, say this in the case with Shane Warne versus Steve Waugh, that uh, once that's removed, uh, things can look very different. But in the heat of the moment, it is very easy just to say, well, we want to win and let's, it papers over everything else. I wonder if that sort of notion is present in other nations' cricket teams. I'm sure in the English cricket team, they've probably got a similar uh, mentality, but I wonder if for other cricket teams, there's a little bit more of an individual's mindset and you sort of come together as a team and it's a bit harder. I think that that's probably true. And I think it also depends on a lot of things, the financial situation. I mean, if I was playing for the West Indies and looked around and realised that I'm not earning that much money in my fellow players are off in the IPL, I'd be very tempted to go there. And that sort of thing is thankfully something Australia doesn't have to worry about because they're all paid well. But there's a lot of things that go into it. But I think um, it's part of the reason Australia tends to do well, that they can all sing from the same hymn sheet. All right. So then we sort of hear Justin Langer talking about the importance of the World Cup and the fact that Australia have won four of the last five tournaments. now four of the last six, unfortunately. Then we sort of see the the entrance of the great Ricky Ponting. I mean, it's built up. You know, it's not only built up how great Ricky Ponting is, but also, you know, how great JL and Ricky Ponting get on. So, you know, Ponting is enters the documentary and doesn't leave. Yeah, and I, I found it great. I, I just, it was, it was fun seeing him arrive and he has a presence even through the, I was watching it on my phone at one in the morning and suddenly him appearing there was, oh, wow, Ricky Ponding's on, on board. And as we said last episode, I think it was fantastic. They got him involved and they should keep him in, as involved as much as possible with the Australian team going forward. It was interesting that he said that his friendship with Justin Langer is such that had it been another coach asking him to get involved, he might have said no. Yep. And I think Justin Langer's done the right thing, bringing these um, greats into the game and, I think the the most indicative bit of the sort of Ricky Ponting adulation was when Nathan Lyon was talking about Ricky Ponting can do anything. And if, you know, if Ricky Ponting tells you how to kick an AFL ball, he's probably, you know, right more so than a professional AFL player. And I think when Lyon debuted, Punter was playing all the captains. So, you know, they played together. There's a tight bond there. But I think although Lyon was kind of joking about the AFL thing, I think that is a pretty fair reflection of the esteem he's held in among those players? Well, I mean, Ponting, I think he's played a round of golf with Jordan Spieth, one of the greatest players in the world, and Spieth was gobsmacked at how good he was. That you know, I'm sure Ponting could have been a professional golfer, and I think probably the only thing that would have stopped him being a professional Aussie rules player was maybe his lack of height. Yeah, I mean, I'd back him to do anything. <laughs> All right, and then the world... Up starts, you know, the hostile atmosphere in the first game against Afghanistan. It's kind of, you know, blown up a bit. They really focus in on that at the moment. And we hear Justin Langer saying how much he hated it and thought it was disrespectful and, you know, saying everybody that was booing has made a mistake in their life. And uh, Ponting saying he wanted to jump the fence and shut a few of them up. So we get to sort of feel the emotions that are, are bubbling away in that dressing room as Warner and Smith get railed by the English crowd. Yeah, it's a very intriguing part of the documentary because on the one hand, I didn't like the crowd booing the players and it's not something that I would have done in that instance. But I can certainly see the opposite side of things. That You know, 
uh, a person in the crowd would have been entitled to say, well, listen, um, I have just paid a large amount of money to come and turn up to a neutral game of cricket. I am, you know, supporting the game of cricket. I'm not disrespecting the game of cricket like you're saying you are. David Warner disrespected the game of cricket with what occurred in, in Cape Town. And so I, I can see both sides of it because I think that Langer and Ponting see the human toll that it took on Warner and Smith. Everything that they had to encounter is worse, I think, than what they did. But I can certainly see the crowd's point of view as well. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. And it was a huge storyline at the time. So I think they sort of gave it enough attention in this moment. I thought the most sort of powerful bit was where at the end where Steve Smith's signing autographs and there's this constant chant of cheat, 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 cheat. Yeah, and that was impressive that throughout the entire uh, English summer, they handled themselves really well. I did find it intriguing that Steve Smith said the reason they were booing him, you know, that that showed to him that he was a threat. And I think that that's not the case, that this was a neutral game again, that they weren't worried about Australia beating Afghanistan or not. They were booing him because of what happened in, in Cape Town. Wasn't it Viv Richards used to say, no one boos a loser or something? Maybe it's... But th- that actually gives you an insight into what fuels St- Steve Smith. I mean, that he is the ultimate competitor. So you know, he sees everything as just more fuel to add to his competitive fires. And then we sort of hear Langer talk about having Warner in the team is like having Floyd Mayweather in the team and he's a bit of a smart ass and, you know, Lyon saying Warner's an expert on everything and, and we sort of see a bit of a joke where Warner's trying to take one of Steve Smith's bats. So that's sort of his character set up and then, surprise, surprise, they focus in on Steve Smith being a, you know, a real batting addict and he can't get a bat out of his hand, which we heard ad nauseum when he came back into the team like that was a big surprise so you know we get to see a bit of the characters I mean I didn't learn much from that I just found it strange as I always do like like I said Steve Smith's weird all he wants to do is bat I mean you with a collection of people who have devoted their lives to batting and they are amongst the very very best in the world the very best in the world is a little bit more devoted than them you would think that they would all say that is the way forward Yet they all mock him for it. I find it uh, absolutely unfathomable. Finch got it. He, you know, he sort of said that um, it's no secret why he's the best because he lives and breathes it. So interesting contrast with the way that Warner wants to prepare. I think he wants to do the hard work in the lead up, but in the in the in the couple of days before the game, he wants a very light preparation. And that was um, and Ponting seemed to agree with that. So that was a an interesting contrast in the way that the two the two champions prepare. Mm. And, then, and then the documentary gathers pace and we sort of fly through the group stage or the, the round robin stage of the World Cup. Now, I, I thought they maybe could have done two episodes on the World Cup just because it felt like you sort of flew through the, the group stage. And, you know, Australia beats the West Indies in a, in a thriller, then they lose to India and then uh, Warner makes a century against Pakistan and that sort of, you know, that was quite a big moment of the documentary, I guess, Warner's century, the comeback story. Yeah, and I suppose the flying through, I can see why they did it because ultimately the semi-final dwarfed everything and that's, everyone watching it, almost would have known what happened. So if they'd celebrated or gone into too much detail about the pool games, it would have felt somewhat uh, lacking in meaning. One thing I found interesting was in the in the game against India, when uh, Warner effectively ran out Finch and Finch uh, walked off fuming and then he smashed his bat into the wall. But that was something that was shown by the, the broadcasters. I was thinking, oh, it's going to be very interesting now to see what he does inside the dressing room. And we didn't see what happened inside the dressing room. And, and I suppose we'll never know whether that's because he didn't do anything remarkable or maybe this is an instance where, um, you know, Cricket Australia said, actually, let's not show that footage. Trash the dressing room. Yeah. And then I guess the, the interesting thing for me in the this sort of running through the group stage was the preparation for the Australia v England game. And, you know, we often um, in this review have sort of made fun of some of the great insights that the coaches have but you know in this game versus England there's seen as a English top order has a weakness against left arm bowling and especially you know the in swinging Yorker so Brad Haddon comes up with this you know great competitive game at training where they have to Stark and and Berendorf in particular are trying to just nail the Yorker nail the Yorker and then lo and behold, we get to the game and second ball, Berendorf bowls at the perfect Yorker and knocks James Vince's middle stump out of the ground. And, and then St- Stark bowls another Jaffa to Stokes and with a Yorker. And I guess it's sort of 
don't know, showing that they, the training they had uh, was right. Yeah, it was neatly done by the documentary and I allowed myself to be swept up in it. Um, I just, when Berendorf hit the stumps, even though I knew it was coming, I thought, oh, that's awesome. I, I just, yeah, I got me hook, line and sinker with the little Berendorf story and then him coming good and then um, Stark getting the, the LBW and later on knocking Stokes over. Um, yeah, I was, a, I was a victim to their um, clever manipulation, if that's what they did. And Australia's the first side through to the semi-final. And this is where, I'm sorry, but I thought Australia was going to win the World Cup. After this game, once we beat England and rock and roll them, I thought there's no way England can beat us in the World Cup. This is ours. This is our tournament. And Australia then beats New Zealand. And, and it's feeling great. I'm feeling great watching the documentary at this point, Paul. I'm up. The, the team's all getting on. It's all laughs. And they, they get off the bus at Old Trafford for training. Everyone's joshing around. And then, then things start to change and the, the music changes tone. Maxwell gets hit by Stark. He gets out of the nets. Then Shaw Marsh gets a broken arm in the nets. And, and yeah, th- this is where the, the, the tone of this episode completely changes. It's always a giveaway when an episode is, or anything is moving very quickly. And then suddenly, why are they focusing on this training session in such uh, in-depth detail? And as you said, why has the music changed? And it's like, this seems all rather innocuous. And then, yeah, it all goes down. It's a really interesting point for me about whether Australia was doing the right thing. I mean, Steve Smith made the point that if you can get through net sessions against Stark and Cummins and, you know, bowling flat out, you feel bulletproof and that that's going to put you in great stead when you're in the real games. And I totally agree with that. But then you look at Maxwell and so he very honestly said that he's terrified when he's going into those net sessions. And the result of them was that, um, you know, the fact that Maxwell got hurt and then Sean Marsh got hurt straight away. I think you've got to objectively look at that and say that was a blunder by the Australian side. Maybe they should have Come said. Come on, mate. What are they going to do? Put them maybe on they sh- pitch the ball up the whole training session. Uh, well, put it this way. If, if someone had said, which side do you think in the lead up to the semifinals is going to um, injure its players by being over competitive in the nets? It wasn't going to be India and it wasn't going to be England. Australia, I applaud their competitiveness, but they got it wrong here. This is what they are attributing the loss in the semi-final to the fact that they had Hanscom having to be rushed in rather than having... Sean Marsh there. Cummins looks bad in all this, doesn't he? I mean, he's like, oh, I'm just going to bowl one more ball because that last one wasn't good. And he breaks Sean Marsh's arm. I mean, that's the first time I've ever seen Pat Cummins look bad, ever. <laughs> he doesn't look bad. Um, <laughs> what's bad is that maybe they should have said, okay, Steve Smith wants it, give it to him. But walk up to Sean Marsh and say, do you want a bouncer? And he might say, well, you know what? I've faced 15,000 bounces in my career. I don't need to face them now. I'll face them out in the middle. It's a question that has to be asked. It's great to have competitive net sessions. Maybe these nets are a bit too spicy and maybe it is a blunder. Yeah, I don't see it that way. I felt like I really kind of understood maybe how Sean Marsh and Usman Khawaja felt being rubbed out of a World Cup. I thought the documentary was able to give you a good window into that feeling of like, I mean, realistically, Kawaja and Sean, well, Sean Marsh definitely, but Kawaja probably won't play in another World Cup either. And they both um, had that dream ripped away from them. I felt that was quite visceral. With Sean Marsh, not only just the World Cup, but he has never been in an Australian side since. And I think you could see in his eyes that he knew that this was a realistic possibility. He, he kind of knew that the thing that he has devoted his life to had ended and it was a, a, yeah, a very painful and sad moment, and I think the documentary captured it well. The fact that Kawaja, who has come across in this entire series as being sensible and unflappable, the fact that he was crying in the, um, in the dressing room afterwards, yeah, that was, uh, it really brought it home, you know, how real it was. So I think it was a powerful um, few moments in the documentary, and you couldn't help but uh, empathise and sympathise with the players involved. That's right. And then Australia loses to South Africa in the last group game. And that's given, I think, the, a proper amount of waiting. You know, the, the significance of that loss was quite dramatic. And in the fact that Australia lost Usman Khawaja with the hamstring injury, it just was a terrible week from Australia, capped off by a loss that had they beaten South Africa, they would have avoided England in the semi final, which we know would have been a good result. And they would have played at Old Trafford, which is a ground they're more comfortable on. So the only, my only thing about this whole thing leading up to the semi-final is where the fudge is Stoinis in all this. I mean, the whole time he was battling injuries, 
I mean, one of the key factors in Australia's World Cup campaign was the fact that one of our all-rounders right, all was carrying an injury and it's not touched on at all. Yeah, I think I can understand why. That's a, If you're going to do a maybe a written analysis of the series, you, you would have mentioned that. I don't think it would have come across all that well on the screen. I think it might have just been a bit of a... It would have just felt nasty to Stoinis, I think, and not especially entertaining. Maybe I just wanted some hate watching or something because I, I still... I still think that they should have just punted Stoinis as soon as he got that injury and brought in another all-rounder. And, you know, for me, that's as a bigger mistake as a bigger, you know, reason we lost the semifinal is um, what happened to our top order. But just a bit off tangent there. Then we get to the World Cup semifinal at Edgbaston against England. I don't even want to talk about this. It's so stunning, stunningly bad. I mean, I can't even talk about it. Uh, even the re- – yeah. So all I can say is – you know, I think Langer set it up perfectly when, what, Finch was out first ball of the game, bold, and LBW. And, you know, Langer says, oh, you know, it's, you know, that's the worst start. You lose your captain, first ball of the game, you know, opening batter. And just ne- we just never were in the contest. I mean, it was just a shit show. Yeah, and I think it just shows the variable nature of one-day cricket. Uh, if you looked at all the press after Australia beat England in the pool game, uh, you would think, uh, as you did, that that was it. Australia had their measure. You look at the press. You look at the press after the semi-final, and you'd think that um, you know Australia were useless compared to England. The fact of the matter is, if they turned up the next day to play a game, the general betting would have added about a fifty-fifty chance. They're two very similar, similarly matched sides. I think the interesting thing is, Ponting made the point, words to the effect of, "It just wasn't our day," and he may well be right. I think they do need to analyse that and say, what could we have done differently on that semi-final day? I mean, we've talked about the lead-up. Should they have managed Usman Khawaja better? Uh, he pulled his hamstring in the in the lead-up. He's a player that's had hamstring issues in the past. Is that a failure of the, the sports science? It may well be examined and they'd say, oh, it's just one of these things, but, but maybe not. Why did they win the toss and, and bat on a pitch that then proved to be spicy and clearly a pitch that they should have bowled first on? It's very easy for me in hindsight to ask these sorts of questions, but I think those are the sorts of questions that Australian cricket should be asking to try to to learn from for the future. I mean, you made it worse because on these notes you wrote, you know, this is Australia's first ever World Cup semi-final loss. And, you know, some of my fondest memories of watching cricket are World Cup semi-finals because as a fan, you want your team in the final. Okay. You want to win the final, but first and foremost, you want your team there and, I remember the 96 World Cup, Australia beat the West Indies in a thriller. The 99 World Cup against South Africa, a thriller. Then you had the semi-final against the Sri Lanka in the 03 World Cup with the famous, uh, infamous Gilchrist walk. I mean, Australia doesn't lose World Cup semi-finals. So this is a painful one. Uh, NASA Hussain's commentary at the end made it much worse where he was just talking about how dominant England were in this game. I left feeling empty. You could see the the shots from the team, they really draw in on the drama of Langer and everyone in tears and hugs and the whole family there. And I did enjoy Ponting's kind of wisdom at the end. Uh, Wisdom's a strong word for cricket dog, but, you know, where he sort of talks about how this team had their opportunity like the successful teams of the past and and they've missed theirs. Um, And and, and that's just the way it is. They, They had the chance and they missed it quite cold. Yeah, and it is. That's, I mean, that's the, the reality of it, that, that many of those players, um, it's quite possible that not one of those players will ever win a World Cup, and um, except for the ones that already have. Um, and that, that's quite a, um, a sobering thought. And I think it's because, because of all this that Australia had such a powerful record in semifinals, maybe because of my character, but I was the opposite to you. When Australia beat England in the, the pool game, I was thinking, oh, you know, this is probably um, leading up to us confirming that, yep, we win the big games and we're going to breeze through the semifinals here. And so when Australia lost, it was like, yeah, it was a run that had to come to an end. How many have we won? Seven in the semifinals? <laughs> if it makes it any easier for you, the last, the, the semifinal in the first World Cup, 1975, we got England all out for 93 and we, we got the runs with um, six wickets down. So you can, you can hang your hat on, on that back to 1975. Oh, it's just just a just a rough viewing at the end of that one, even though I knew it was coming. So, 
That's the end of um, episode six. They tease forward to the ashes then. And, you know, they say that the ashes of Australia is, you know, the best way to get over an unsuccessful World Cup campaign. I I don't know about this episode, Paul. Obviously, I like all the episodes because they're about cricket. But I kind of felt because it just kind of breezed through a lot of games quickly, there was only a few moments of depth. Whereas I felt some of the other shows about the test matches and stuff, there was a bit more substance to them. Yeah, I, I, I probably didn't enjoy it as much as some, but I think they did have a difficult job. found it interesting earlier on with, with David Warner saying in the team meeting how uh, when he was struggling that he, he felt the pressure to not get out. Ponting's reply was very sharp uh, and, and sort of disabusing him of that notion quickly. And it made me think, I, I would love to say, just to annoy all the old-timers, the Australian team needs a psychologist with them. They don't have enough support staff. They need to be more hangers-on. But seriously... Well, there should be a psychologist per player. Exactly. A counsellor on tour for each person. To make a serious point, Warner must surely have realised that it was an irrational view to feel afraid of getting out. So when Ponding just said, stop it, you know, he, Warner claims that that, was, that had some impact. But I think... I think you're giving Warner too much credit. No, but I'm saying uh, they always go on about what a mental game it is. Sometimes just simplistic things of all, you know, get over yourself. But there was one game Warner's talking about, oh, I felt this, like, thing on top of me stopping me playing shots, you know. I don't know, was it against Pakistan? Oh, I just felt, you know, this way. I just couldn't play shots. I couldn't let go. I mean, that's called pressure. I mean, that that's, you know. Yeah, and my point is you need sometimes a professional to help you get through that rather than someone just saying, mate, just stop worrying. You know, we all know sometimes you've got to stop worrying it's not necessarily so easy to do it. So my hope is that we get three or four psychologists to tour with the team and I get to be the one to tell Ian Chappell that that's happening. (laughs) Well, good thought to end our review of episode six of the test. We want more psychologists in Australian cricket. All right. Final break of this episode. Then we're going to be back with can't let it go. I just want to remind you, if you want to find us on social media, we're at Oz Cricket Pod. That's AUS Cricket Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on TikTok. That's right. We were there before everybody else. I mean, everyone's on TikTok now, Paul. Have you seen Aaron Finch's latest video of him singing? It's very funny. But we're on TikTok as Cricket Unfiltered. Have you seen Finch's? No. Um, I've seen ours, though. Ours are fantastic. You should get on there. Yeah, and lots of cricketers are there. So go on to TikTok. And if you want to email us any questions for the next show, it's Oz Cricket Pod. That's AUS Cricket Pod at gmail.com. All right, coming up after the break, can't let it go. And we're going to end this episode the way we like to end all our Cricket Unfiltered at the moment is with Can't Let It Go, that one bit of cricket news you just can't let go through to the keeper. Paul, what's yours this week? Well, you've probably heard of the doomsday clock that they have for um, how far, how close Earth is to a catastrophe. I have the opposite in my house. I have the uh, Steve Warren and Shane Warne friendship clock, and I always want to um, be able to dial it towards uh, they have become friends again. Sadly, during the week, I had to dial it significantly in the other direction. It's it's perilously close to midnight now. And I still remain hope that one day they'll become great friends again. But Warren keeping on sniping away at Steve War, I, I you know, I don't know either of them, but my inclination is that Steve War was not a jealous not a selfish player. Or if he was, it was selfish in the way that all players should be, that you know, he tried his very best. Warren needs to let it go. It's unedifying. It's great that Steve War is not replying. And as I said, I still hope that one day in the distant future they can have a beer together again. Mm. I, like you, uh, think it's unedifying. And I just, I'm just going to judge Steve War on what I can see. And I've seen the amount of charity work he's done. I, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, the great work he's done in India with the, the children there. So I'll judge him on that and say it doesn't come across as very selfish to me, despite the fact that he won't come on this podcast. I haven't done it and I probably won't, but I like to imagine if I did go and look at every run out that Steve Waugh was involved in, both when he got run out and when his opponent got run out and scored them as into, you know, no one to blame, him to blame or his partner to blame, and then did the same thing for Shane Warne, I wouldn't be surprised if the overall maths comes out almost the same. Well, I mean, also Rob Belinda, I don't know if you saw, he he did all of the run outs of Steve Waugh's in one compilation and only got That's through the... That's what sparked this all off. 
Well, I only got through the first, you know, 10 or 15 of them. And like, there was only a couple that was Steve's war's fault out of the 10 or 15. So again, it's just. Jeff Lemon did an article about it and basically said that, that yeah, that war wasn't too much to blame. <laughs> he amusingly said half of them involved Mark War, which you can, you know, that's, that's just brotherly love. And the rest of it, half the time, Steve War wasn't to blame. So yeah, warning needs to let it go. And now my can't let it go is had a Zoom press conference with one Ashton Agar uh, yesterday as we record this. And I asked him if he'd been, you know, tempted to come across to New South Wales because Stephen O'Keefe had, had retired. And he said, no, he wasn't. He loves Perth. He, um, he just loves living there. He loves playing there. And yeah, so he wasn't tempted, which I surpri- I'm surprised about. He also spoke highly of Cameron Green and just said, and this guy's going to be a star. We all knew that. But it's when he was asked about the success of his younger brother, Wes guy, And I didn't have a chance to tell Ashton that I'm head of his brother's fan club, um, but I will let him know. But when Ashton was asked about the performances of his brother, there was not one hint of derision, sarcasm. You know, Paul, how brothers like to sort of put each other down for amusement. You know, cricketers do it as well. There was none of that. He simply said, like, with a straight face, he hates facing his brother more than anyone else because he's so good. He's, you know, he's just the best bowler. He bowls fast, long spells. He's incredible. He's a, he's a great player. He's, you know, I love seeing him do so well. You know, nothing, just such brotherly love. And my brother listens to this and, you know, I just, I wish I was as close as them. I mean, the Agar brothers have a phenomenal relationship. No, I think they have a normal relationship, but I don't know what's the story with you. Like that's that's how you would expect when you're talking about your own brother. Of course, you want him to succeed. But the way he said, you know, he's just I hate facing him. He's so good. He's you know, he basically said he's the best bowler in the country. He can bowl fast spells for you know long periods. I mean, I, I get it, but it was just it was you know, if you'd asked one of the Hussey brothers about each other, I'm sure it wouldn't be the same. No, you ask them in a joking way and it's not going to be the same. But when they're actually seriously talking about it, um, of course they're going to say the same. All right. Well, I'm just more cynical than you. Well, listeners, we, we've gone far. I'm glad to- I'm not your brother. Yeah. Well, hello, brother. Hello, Stephen, if you're listening. Uh, all right, well, Paul, thanks um, again for coming on Cricket Unfiltered. Go back and listen to Paul's Bradman history special. It's phenomenal. Yeah, congratulations, Paul. Thanks, Menace. Um, and... The third one will be out. Uh, hopefully, I won't take six weeks this time. Um, we'll get the, um, the the end of the phenomenal summer of 1928-29 out pretty soon. And remember, we're starting our own YouTube show on Thursday, the 28th of May, 5.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, live on our YouTube channel. We'll put all the links uh, in the next podcast episode. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.